This is episode number 144 with expert on the keto diet and co-author of Keto Answers, Chris Irvin. Most of the benefit of what a lot of these fad diets are is what they're not. Chris Irvin. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. My goal is for you to gain more clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, what the best version of yourself is capable of, and then to give you the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person a reality. Today I bring you keto researcher and educator Chris Irvin, also known as the Ketologist. I've been super pumped for this episode to come out ever since we finished it because this is something everybody needs to hear. Whether you want to follow the keto diet or not, there's so much to learn in this episode. No, I don't follow the keto diet myself. However, I do follow a lot of the principles that are embedded in the keto approach. In this episode, Chris will break down what keto is for you because I know it's confusing. He'll tell you what ketosis is, how to get into it, and the benefits of it. He'll give you tips if you're trying to start the keto diet. He talks about the role that insulin plays in your diet, which is super important. He gives great tips on what to look for and what to look out for when you're grocery shopping. And finally, he talks about the Netflix documentary Game Changers and all the issues that he has with it and so much more. Make sure you take a screenshot of this episode when you're listening to it and post it on your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you and tag Chris at the ketologist. That's T-H-E-K-E-T-O-L-O-G-I-S-T. I know he'd love to know you're listening and hear your favorite part and what you're learning. Make sure if you haven't subscribed to the show yet that you do so right now. I've got an amazing lineup of interviews coming your way very soon, and I don't want you to miss out on the amazing messages and lessons. Make sure that you share this episode with a friend who is trying to make a diet change or looking to refine their eating habits. You never know how much this could help them along their journey. But for now, it's time. It's time to work on getting closer to the best version of yourself today with the one, the only, Chris Irvin. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super intrigued and fired up today to have a uh, one of the co-authors of Keto Answers with me today, uh, Chris Irvin. So, Chris, I just want to start by saying thanks for uh, spending the time with me here today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm super stoked to, to get on and chat some keto, nutrition, whatever else we dive into today. Yeah, of course, of course. And, and like you just said, so Chris is a nutrition researcher, writer, and educator, co-author of the book I just talked about, Keto Answers. And uh, he's the education manager for Perfect Keto. And as you you know, you just mentioned to me before we, we hopped on that your background is in exercise science and nutrition. And I know that kind of as growing up, you were big into sports and you were a basketball player and always kind of skinny and always looked for ways to just kind of gain weight. And you just eat you would eat whatever you could to, to try to put on weight. Never saw necessarily too much success until maybe a little bit later on in college, but you would eat whatever and not really think too much about the nutritional value of what you were putting in your body. And then you did this physique competition where you had really awesome results and you had you looked really good, but you were super unhealthy and uh, you developed a, a mild eating disorder, hormonal complications. And that's kind of where uh, I want to pick up a little bit and talk about kind of how you got into keto or how you got into really being focused on nutrition and when was it like, when was the moment of, okay, this is my thing. Like I'm, I'm studying keto. This is the area I really want to be an expert in. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So when I first, 
I first got into nutrition very mildly when I was in my undergraduate. I, I'd taken a couple of nutrition classes as a part of my exercise science major. And, uh, you know, the problem with a lot of the information that I learned was super outdated, as most of academics around nutrition is right now. Uh, but it definitely showed me that there was this other component to health that didn't just involve exercise. Um, you know, what you put in your body is going to be a great indicator of how you're able to perform physically and, and things like that. Um, but then, you know, like, like you mentioned, I didn't really take to the nutrition side of it too much until after uh, undergrad, I started, uh, you, you mentioned the physique competition. And I always joke, this, it's such a funny story how I got into that. I was, uh, I had a coworker who had just done a bodybuilding show. And I was sitting on my couch one night with my roommate. And uh, we were just, kind of, we were actually eating a pizza at the time. This was long before keto. And uh, we were just kind of like joking about the, the competition. I was like, man, I wonder like what it takes to actually do something like that. And my roommate was like, uh, there's no way you could ever do that. He's like, you, you know, you can't get your diet in check or anything like that. So that night I actually signed up for a competition that was 12 weeks later. And I was like, oh, I'll show you. Um, so, so I jumped into it and, you know, obviously to do a physique competition, you know, getting down to like below 5% body fat nutrition has to be a focus. So I really started diving into nutrition principles, but I was diving into the wrong ones. So I was focused a lot on calorie restriction. I was focused a lot on low fat dieting. Um, I was probably eating like less than 50 or 40 grams of fat a day and like cycling in carbs at like, you know, two, three, 400 grams a day, things like that. Um, and you know, I achieved my physique goal, but like you mentioned, I, I, uh, just felt like heck, you know, I just didn't have, I wasn't providing the correct nutrition in my body. I was definitely taking like the if it fits your macros approach where I was just trying to, you know, make sure I was hitting these numbers, but not focused on like the nutrient density or anything like that. And, uh, after that competition, I kind of decided, I was like, man, I really need to, to take a second look at this. You know, it's not just about looking good and aesthetics, you know, obviously those things can go hand in hand, but you can also, you know, I had proof of concept that you could look good and, and have a, a good, um, aesthetic appearance and not be that healthy. So I started looking into going back to school and I wanted to study a little bit more of nutrition. And uh, so I went to a, I saw that there was a unique program down at the University of Tampa that was doing more research around um, nutrition and stuff as it related to bodybuilding, which I was kind of interested at the time. And so I, I applied for that program and I went down to uh, a conference that was down in Tampa. And this conference, it was a very small conference, probably like 50 people attending and maybe like five, six speakers. But two of the speakers were one was Dr. D'Augustino, and then the second one was Dr. Volick. And uh, at the time, I had no idea what keto was. I had never heard about it, uh, but they both presented it and talked about it. Um, Jeff, Dr. Jeff Volick talked, if anybody's familiar with his research, uh, he talked a lot about you know endurance performance and, and the ketogenic diet for that. And then, um, you know, Dr. D'Augustino, I think, just kind of broke down a lot of the physiology behind the diet. And uh, at the time, I, I really only saw it as like a weight loss diet or maybe a diet that somebody in endurance sports would do. And neither, I wasn't looking for either of those two things at the time. So I kind of just recommended uh, the diet to a couple people who, I, who had been coming to me and asking for weight loss tips and stuff like that. And, um, and then really didn't think any more of it. And then a few months later, when I actually started attending school, I had a sports nutrition class. And my first class was about keto. And in that class, I really became fascinated by it. And I was like, you know, it seems like there's actually a lot more to this. Uh, it seems like there's more benefits than just weight loss. You know, you start talking about the mental clarity and all these things that come with it. 
So after day one of the class, I actually just, I went to the grocery store, you know, got keto foods and just hopped on the diet and made a ton of mistakes along the way. You know, there wasn't a lot of, at the time, this was probably back in 2015. So there wasn't a lot of, you know, people out there with Instagram accounts that were talking about keto. There wasn't a lot of meal plans available on the internet. You really just had to, I was kind of making it up as I went. Um, But despite making a lot of mistakes, I really felt pretty incredible. And you know, at the time I was working this crazy work schedule where I was, uh, I was a personal trainer and I was working from like five to eight in the morning training people. And then I would go to the exercise science lab and I would do research from about nine to five uh, at night. And then I would go back to the gym and train from like five to nine thirty or 10 that night. So I was putting in these crazy hours and, yeah. um, but you know, on the keto diet, I was like, I wasn't hungry, so I wasn't like, you know, I was able to go long periods of time without eating while I was trying to train people. And I had like this crazy energy and like all this mental clarity and stuff. So it really kind of showed me that there was something more uh, to this diet and I really took to it. And then it wasn't until, you know, several months later that I actually picked up this book called uh, Tripping Over the Truth, which is uh, written by Travis Christofferson. I highly recommend it. He's uh, one of my favorite authors and, and he's an incredible guy. And And this book talked about a lot of the therapeutic side of the keto diet, which I hadn't even come across yet. You know, at the time, I was doing a lot of research on keto for sports performance. So in the lab I was working in, we were studying keto for um, like strength and power and endurance performance and and body composition, things like that. Uh, But then this book really opened up my eyes to this fact that there was some research going on with, um, you know, cancer and diabetes and, and cardiovascular disease and all these different things. And uh, and that, that was my first, you know, eye-opening experience about really the, the power and the potential of this diet. And then from there, you know, I just really took off and dove into the research and kind of shifted my focus into more of those, some of those therapeutic applications for the diet. So, um, yeah, between learning about what was going on in the research and then giving it a try myself, there was really no looking back. Yeah. So when... <sighs> So is there a, was there a particular moment? So like your Instagram handle is the ketologist. So like what, what, what's the moment where you're like, I'm going, like, I'm, I'm going all in. Like, I, like this is what I'm doing. Cause obviously like you're branding yourself as, you know, the, the keto guy. So what, what's, what's the moment? Yeah. So it was like, uh, I was going through, I was finishing up my uh, master's program. And at the time I was really contemplating uh, starting my PhD. I wanted to continue studying. Uh, the keto diet. And I actually, I moved from studying in the exercise science laboratory to, I was doing a little internship over at uh, USF um, working in Dr. D'Augustino's lab. So they they had a lab over there where they're doing a lot of animal therapeutic research on different, um, you know, there's different metabolism research. And uh, I was really fascinated by that. And so I, 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 you know, asked if I could go in there and do some shadowing and, and do a little internship. And through spending some time over there and digging into the research, I saw one, that all of these people, these researchers in this lab were doing this incredible work, like life-changing work, finding out you know, information about cancer and, and all these different therapeutic applications for the diet. But then you know, the information was kind of being locked away in these journals where people either didn't have access to it or they didn't have the ability to really read and understand what the papers were saying if they did have access to it. And I hated this because I saw how much hard work these researchers were putting in. And it's like, this work isn't reaching as many people as it can. 
So from there, I decided that I kind of want to be this like liaison between what's going on in the research and what's actually going on in the real world. I wanted to be somebody who could take this research and kind of break it down and, and put it out on social media where people are spending their time anyway. Um, and so they could actually understand it and apply it to their own lives. So that was, I think that was definitely the, the first time that I decided that I wanted to jump into this was seeing how much potential, like, you know, you have family members who are dealing with these chronic conditions and you see that there's this diet that is maybe not a hundred percent answer to it, but it definitely can help in a lot of different ways, but people have no idea about it. And if they did have an idea, they wouldn't know what to do in the first place. And I think that was just so frustrating to me that I wanted to, to do at least some part in changing that, that story. Yeah, I love that. I think that's an that's an awesome reason. I'm, it's and it's good that you uh, saw the gap and were willing to uh, put the time in to fill it and be that resource for everybody. So I want to start off with your basics of keto. You know, for people who don't really know anything about it, basically start off answering the question: What is the ketogenic diet? And I kind of want you to kind of wrap it up, transition, wrap it up with kind of the role that insulin plays, kind of in our body. Yeah, definitely. So. The keto diet, traditionally speaking, is, um, you know, the ketogenic diet was first developed in the 1920s. It was developed because um, there, the fasting at the time was the primary um, treatment for children who were suffering from epilepsy. And obviously, you know, having children fast isn't a great long-term solution when you start talking about like growth and, and you know, maintaining a proper growth curve. So uh, there was this need to find a different uh, diet or, you know, some sort of dietary intervention that would allow them to get the benefits of fasting while still being able to eat. And that's how, you know, this ketogenic was found that this doctor, Dr. Robert Wilder, uh, found that they, he was able to, you know, through eating high fat and low carb, he was able to mimic what happens during fasting. And that's where the ketogenic diet kind of stemmed from. So traditionally speaking, everybody always refers to the ketogenic diet as a high fat, low carb diet. I'm actually not a huge proponent of looking at the diet through those lens. I think that really what a ketogenic diet is, is it's a diet that allows you to uh, get into a state of ketosis. So for those who don't know what that means, uh, ketosis is a metabolic state in which you have elevated blood ketones. It's, it's a state where your uh, cells are no longer using glucose from carbohydrates as fuel. Instead, it's using um, fat for fuel and in, in the process of that, breaking down fat and producing a a secondary fuel source known as ketone molecules um, and using those ketone molecules as energy. So uh, this has to happen in, in the, for most people, it has to happen in the absence of carbohydrates. So you have to, you know, get to a carbohydrate level where you're, uh, you're able to actually produce these ketones, uh, which insulin is, is a key role in this. So, you know, one of the things that happens when, you know, to give a brief biochemistry breakdown of it, when you uh, when you consume carbohydrates, carbohydrates are broken down into glucose. This causes an increase in your blood sugar. When you have an increase in your blood sugar, this signals for your pancreas to release insulin. What insulin's job is to do is to kind of go to our cells and communicate to our cells to open up their doors and allow glucose to come into the cells where it can be used to produce energy. And the energy is what's needed for, you know, all the cells in our body to carry out the functions, you know, digestion, uh, you know, movement. Um, your heart beating, anything that your body completes, it needs energy for that. So when we stop eating carbohydrates, which can happen through either fasting, a very low carbohydrate diet, um, or just a low calorie diet, what happens is your blood sugar lowers. And when your blood sugar lowers, this means that you have to stop producing insulin, or you don't need to produce as much insulin. Now, when our insulin lowers, we will produce a different hormone that's known as glucagon. 
And what glucagon does is it tells our fat cells that, hey, we need to release this fat to burn for energy because we don't have any, any we don't have as much blood sugar as we need to create energy. And uh, so what will happen is, is this blood sugar or these, these fat that's getting released from our stored fat will one, get burned for energy, but then some of it will go down to our liver where our liver will convert that fat into ketones and our liver cannot use the ketones. So it will release the ketones out into our bloodstream where it will travel and it can be used really by any part of our, any of our cells um, with the exception of, I, I think red blood cells is really the only cell that can't use ketones. Um, but the majority of these ketones that we produce will travel to our brain. So our, our, most of our body will spare the utilization of, uh, of ketones so our brain can use them. And, and uh, ketones are actually kind of the preferred fuel source of the brain. So there's research out there that shows that if you have both glucose and ketones available, your brain will choose to use ketones. And there's a lot of reasons why that is, and we can dive into those if, if there's interest in that. But um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the way that the process works. So when most people, you know, a lot of people refer to keto as, you know, you need to be eating 75% of your calories from fat, 20% of your right. calories from protein. Uh, this was the way that the diet was developed for children with epilepsy, right? And actually it was even a little bit lower protein and higher fat than that. Um, but that doesn't necessarily have to encompass what a keto diet is. Really, it's, it's a diet that gets you into the state of ketosis that we just talked about. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, so... I think that honestly, probably the majority of people still out there don't even don't even know that. So I think that's a perfect foundation to to kind of start with. And kind of where I want to go from here is, you know, we talk about or you talk about how ketosis is the state that essentially your body is using fat as the fuel source rather than carbohydrates, rather than glucose. One thing that we learn in, in exercise is that heart rate has a role in which fuel source you're using. So if you know you're in an aerobic middle heart rate zone where you're challenged but not too terribly much, you're you're kind of recruiting or you're using fat for energy. So I want you to talk about first off is is this like true that you know the heart rate matters in terms of what fuel source you're you're using and, and recruiting for energy. And then do we need to be like, does it, does it help us to be completely depleted of carbs in order to, like, do we need to be completely de depleted of carbs to use fat as our fuel source? Or does having some carbs, uh, okay, is having some carbs okay and we can still use fuel or fat as our fuel source in that mid-heart rate zone? I don't know if that was a clear enough question, but I kind of want you to just kind of dive into the fuel source and heart rate talk. Yeah, so it's, it's a really good it is a great question the way you asked it because I think a lot of people think it's cut and dried. They think that you're only using one or the other, right? So right. we have this pro this thing called the, it's kind of an old traditional model called the hierarchy of fuel utilization, right? Where it's like if there's carbs present in glucose, your body will use that first because it's path of least resistance. It's very easy for the body to use that. And then from there, it'll go down the ladder. Um, Protein is usually the last thing that your body will use to break down because it's from right. an evolutionary standpoint, it doesn't make sense to do so. It's very costly. Um, and then, you know, of course, at different activity levels, you'll recruit different levels. So, you know, if you get into highly um, high intensity type training, that's more glycolytic, you'll probably pull from your carbohydrate stores a lot more. Whereas if you're in that, like you mentioned, that middle range where you're, you're, uh, you're not depending on high power output or anything like that, then you're going to depend a little bit more on um, breaking down fat. So now the question of is, is, you know, can you do, can you still break down fat while there's carbs present? Well, you're always going to be burning fat to some capacity, right? So 
fat, um, this hierarchy of fuel utilization also is kind of independent and specific to our different tissues. So um, like our, our heart, for instance, will burn primarily fat. That's, that's really like one of the main fuel sources that it'll use. So um, your body is always going to be using a blend of these different things. Now, if you are somebody who is, say you are providing your body with a ton of carbohydrates, right? So you're eating five, 600 grams of carbs. You're definitely going to be leaning a lot heavier towards burning mostly carbs and a lot less fat. And the same can be said for somebody who's severely insulin resistant, right? So um, insulin resistant, we just kind of talked about the methods of, of action of insulin. Um, you know, that process of, of insulin talking to our cells and telling it to, to open up and everything and use, use this glucose, that process can become um, just kind of worn out. And it, it will make it so your cells no longer effectively communicate with insulin. And um, when this happens, uh, you, you become insulin resistant, right? So um, when you are more insulin resistant, it means that you have to keep producing more and more insulin until you reach the point of being like a diabetic where that, that whole process is exhausted. But in the, in the middle, when you're, when you're insulin resistant, you're not going to burn very much fat at all because one of the things we know is that fat actually will directly inhibit, or I'm sorry, insulin can directly inhibit the fat burning process. So if you have chronically elevated levels of insulin, like somebody with insulin resistance or somebody who is eating a ton of carbs would have, then you are going to be, um, you know, you're, you're not going to be able to tap into to fuel very well. So that's why somebody who is, you know, eating carbs all the time and, and that's, they're more likely to continue to gain weight because they're more likely to store fat than they are to, to burn it. That's obviously an overly simplistic way to look at it. Um, but for somebody who is like metabolically healthy, somebody who is exercising very well, you're going to be able to transition back and forth very well, very easily. So, you know, for like, let's say a, a world-class athlete who is, um, you know, let's look at like somebody like Zach Bitter, um, who is like the, uh, one of the, the best ultra endurance marathon runners in the world. He's uh, he's actually a keto dieter himself. He's so metabolically flexible that if he consumes 200 grams of carbohydrates before he does a race, he's going to burn through those carbohydrates and he's going to very quickly be able to transition over to, to fat, right? He is going to probably use that, those carbohydrates as the fuel source first. Um, but then he's going to be able to transition to fat very quickly because he's insulin sensitive. He's metabolically flexible. He has a, a healthy and appropriate metabolism. So uh, a lot of that, you know, that question, it really depends on what your metabolic state is. You know, for somebody like myself who I've been following keto for a while, I may have had a damaged metabolism before, but now I have a pretty healthy metabolism. I can also cycle through different fuels very efficiently now because of uh, the duration that I've, I've been following the diet for. So, you know, for instance, this, this last weekend, I was, uh, I was down in Miami uh, for a wedding and, and indulging in some carbohydrates down there, uh, you know, got kicked out of ketosis and uh, when I came back, I did some testing and things like that, and I was very quickly able to transition back into burning fat and producing ketones, right? So, um, you know, that's a long-winded way to say that it's not one or the other unless you're on the extreme end of the damaged metabolism uh, of, of the spectrum. But then, as a caveat to that, too, you know, you're, you never have zero, zero blood sugar available, right? So, uh, even somebody who's on a zero-carb diet, like, you know, if anybody who does like a carnivore diet where they're not consuming a single carb your blood sugar never goes to zero. And the reason why is because we have this process called gluconeogenesis where we will break down non-carbohydrate materials to form glucose. And this is an important thing because one, there's, um, there's certain cells in our body, like our red blood cells, that can't use fat and ketones. So we must have the, this glucose available. And there's even maybe some parts of the brain where it's, we're unsure if they, if they can operate without glucose either, so you need some. 
you know, the good part is those that you don't have to consume these carbs to get that glucose. So uh, you're, you're never just using one fuel source. You're always going to be using a blend of them. And, uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I think that's that was awesome. A great explanation. Um, I'm going to go back to the heart rate thing just a little bit just to clarify something for something I'm interested in personally is like, so high intensity, like you said, the high intensity, high power output kind of you're going to recruit your carbs first say that somebody does and again this might be a very dependent on the person and their own level of health and their own metabolic rate and all that kind of stuff efficiency say they burn through their carbs however they still keep continuing to work at a super high intensity are at that high intensity do they still recruit fat for fuel and if not or at what point does it kind of start to eat into muscle breakdown and stuff like that? That's a good question. And I, I don't know if I can accurately answer that to 100%, you know, to a T, but I would say that um, you're going to, yeah, you're still going to be able to tap into other fuel sources. But now the problem is, is that, you know, something like, like fat is a, a little bit slower of a fuel source to tap into. So if you have, you know, completely exhausted your glycolytic system and you are now having to, you know, solely depend on fat, you're probably not going to be able to maintain that same level of exercise intensity because of the, the rate in which you're breaking down fat isn't going to quite be as, as fast, if that makes sense. So um, that's, that's probably where that's going to come into play, where you're, you're, going to, you know, you're probably not going to be able to maintain that unless you have this crazy adapted body where you can just continue to, to put it that output at despite this lack of, of fuel uh, being quickly metabolized for you. Okay. Gotcha. So the, the phrase that you mentioned a number of times is insulin resistant. And I want to, so basically, and I, I don't know why I always uh, get these mixed up in my head. Insulin resistant is when your body, like you're having a ton of carbs and your body continues to produce insulin a lot to to the point of excess, correct? Yeah. So yeah, so that that's a, that's yeah. yeah I'll, are you going to ask a question from that? I can let you. Uh, uh, yeah, a little bit. I wanted to kind of get to the point where, like, if people are eating carbs, but a pretty good amount, like relatively low amount, and like healthy amount, is there, are there certain foods that are that? Uh, is it like the the quality of the food that makes you? not be not get to that insulin resistant point or is it simply just the volume of the carbs yeah that's a that's a really good question and you know obviously there's going to be carb sources that are better than others so like you know having a sweet potato is going to be a lot superior to having you know a candy bar of course right um so you know that that definitely plays a role but and and volume of carbohydrates also plays a role, but more important than both of those is the duration in which you have that high volume. Mm. So I'm not going to develop insulin resistance, um, significant insulin resistance from a weekend of, you know, binge eating or anything like that, or even a couple weeks of that. But now, you know, a couple weeks of it, you'll probably develop some degree of it, but insulin resistance is something that happens from the chronic overconsumption of carbohydrates. So, you know, insulin resistance is one of the first uh, indicators of like pre-diabetes. Um, it's one of the first, you know, kind of things that we can measure that is an indicator that you're kind of trending towards being diabetic. So, you know, you don't develop pre-diabetes overnight. It's something that happens from, 
you know, so if, if you go out to today and just have the ultimate cheat meal where it's like I'm having beer, pizza, and followed up by ice cream, uh, right. your body's not going to be happy with you, but you're going to be able to, you know, metabolize that, get back to baseline pretty quickly. But it's the standard American diet where you're doing things like that every day, very frequently, you know, consistently having 300, 400 grams of carbs. And that's going to be what's really going to exhaust that system and cause that insulin resistance to develop. Okay, gotcha. So, so people, and, and it, it sounds like, I'm, I'm trying, I, I want to get into the point where people are basically starting, if people start keto, um, how, and, and they haven't had a very good diet in the past, how strict do they have to be for, for how long of a time do they have to be super strict with themselves in order to like kick down their insulin resistance, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And you're, you're inferring it like absolutely correctly. So, you know, when I started keto, um, being somebody that was already pretty healthy, exercising a lot, um, wasn't overweight or anything like that. I didn't need to follow it as long, um, to, it didn't take me as long to get into ketosis. It didn't take me as long to start seeing the benefits, um, and, and, or any of those things. Now, somebody who has been, you know, let's say somebody who is pre-diabetic, somebody who has been following the standard American diet for, you know, 20 years, that's all they've ever known, it is going to take them a lot longer because um, it, their body has, you know, when we're born, so when, when you're born at baseline, you're actually born in a state of ketosis. All babies are born in ketosis. And there's a lot of reasons why that is from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, but we are, we pretty much as children maintain ketosis until we're introduced to solid foods. And then unfortunately, with the way that our food system is, the first foods that we're introduced to for solid foods is cereal, right? Processed carbohydrates. And that starts the trend towards, you know, falling away from being able to effectively break down fat and produce ketones. And, you know, the longer that we're away from this state um, and the more damaged our metabolism is, the harder it is for us to really to get there. So uh, for somebody who is, you know, I'd say somebody who's really in that pre-diabetic, really at the extreme end of the spectrum, uh, very damaged metabolism, they're probably going to have to follow keto for a pretty long duration, you know, like probably in the six plus months at least to really start getting back to that that level. And for somebody that's in that range, it's probably never going to make sense for them to go back to the way that they were eating before, right? Now, that right. doesn't mean that they ever need to, that doesn't mean they need to maintain a level of ketosis forever um, because nobody needs to maintain a level of ketosis forever unless you're talking about very specific um, disease models and things like that. Um, but it's never going to make sense for them to go back. They're probably going to need to maintain at least a low carb state for most of their life. And, um, and you know, we don't have an exact way to break this down, but I think that if we were to draw a graph, it would probably be the, the level, you know, the longer you've been following the standard American diet um, is probably going to correlate very well with the, the degree of damage to your metabolism, which is going to increase the length of time that you're probably going to need to follow this low carb diet. So I think the way that you're looking at it is probably you're hitting the nail on the head. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think being able to, and I'm, I'm glad I asked the question because I think a lot of people are probably in the stage where they have been doing the wrong thing for such a long time. And they think that everybody should have the same or should be, should try the diet for the same period of time and have the same results to without without dependency on what they've been doing prior, and that's very much obviously not the case, I guess. Um, so, and also to speak to that too, because I know you asked this question too. Like, 
somebody who is like yourself, you know, you're somebody who you, you're into exercise, you work out a lot, you're in shape. You might be able to get into the state of ketosis at restricting your carbs to 80 grams a day, hundred grams a day. And you might be just fine. Whereas somebody who is, you know, more insulin resistant, they're probably going to have to go lower than 20. Like they are going to have to go to that extreme end of the spectrum to be able to get there. So that's also going to play a role. And, you know, you always see, that's why to your point, you can't really compare, right? Like what it takes for me, like even right now I can eat, you know, if I were to go out right now and eat 150 grams of carbs, I may not get kicked out of ketosis. And if I did, I may be back in within a few hours of testing. Whereas somebody else, like if they have 30 grams of, of sugar, that's, that might kick them right out. You know, they might just yeah. have be overproducing insulin like crazy and, and kicked right out. So um, that's definitely a factor to take into consideration too. Yeah. All right. So now I want to dive into a couple of a couple of specific kind of like food groups and talk about kind of like the specific what you need to be looking at when you're like kind of grocery shopping and that sort of thing. Because one of the things that you guys talk a lot about in the book is that it's not necessarily enough just to be on the keto diet. Like you guys have the the thing in the book called Keto Plus, where it's like it's you can be eating. A low carb diet, but still have low quality foods. So keto plus that, that you guys talk about is being in the state of ketosis, but with like very qual- high quality foods. And so I kind of want to just talk about a few of the things that are most commonly recognized as part of the keto diet, and talk about, and they really are part of like any kind of healthy eating. And I want you to talk about the the best sources of these things to be able to get. So I want to start with simply meat, and I'll, I want you to start with beef and then and then kind of go into poultry and how people can best shop at the grocery store and what words they should be looking for and and things of that nature yeah for sure so um yeah i'm glad you you bring this one up because we're we're living in a society now where everybody's afraid of meat everybody's talking down on it there's so many misconceptions out there i was giving a talk at a school a couple weeks ago and there was this kid that uh, I was talking about nutrition and uh, this kid was telling me, he's like, yeah, my dad watched the Game Changers documentary and now our whole family's going vegan. Do you think that's a good idea? And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so when it comes to meat, I, I will start by saying we preach quality meat a lot. Um, and when we talk about quality, we're, we're referring to things like grass fed and finished, um, you know, which is something that you have to pay attention to a lot of companies now because grass fed is a buzzword that they'll say grass fed on all of the meat. But uh, just because it's like most cows are grass fed, you know, but what happens is, is they finish them on grains to kind of help fatten them up, marble the meat, different things like that. Um, so people will say grass fed, that doesn't always mean grass finished. So if you're looking for this, then you want to make sure that it also says grass finished on. Now I will say that the research. Does, on- does it, one thing real quick. Does it always say grass fed and finished or does like, I think, um, I, and I could be just mistaking. Does it say 100% grass fed sometimes? Yeah, but again, I'm unsure if 100% grass fed also means grass means. finished. You know, like okay. because that, I don't, it doesn't seem like that's a claim that's like regulated very tightly. So, right. I mean, the best the best way to do it, like if you're going to a grocery store and you're trying to do this, and we'll get into why it's important, but and you're trying to find this, there there will always, you know, pretty much every grocery store I've seen, there'll be some option that says grass fed and finished. Um, if you don't have that option, then the hundred percent grass fed is going to be your next best option. But then there's also farmers markets where you can go and just simply ask the farmer, you know, what what does it look like? What are you feeding your your cattle? Things like that. Um, but one thing that I'll say is that looking at the research, it is unclear 
if one is, is leads to a better outcome than the other in terms of our health. Um, me, and, and that's because we haven't really looked at it, right? So that we haven't really followed what happens when somebody over the course of a year eats grass-fed and finished versus grain-fed, right? We don't really know. Um, there's been a couple very small studies that don't really shed a whole lot of light on this. Um, but one thing that we do, you know, we assume is that if, if cattle are eating a completely grass-fed diet, then we, we see that they probably have a higher nutrient density. They have more omega-3 fats in them, uh, less omega-6 fats in them, uh, maybe more levels of like beneficial compounds like CLA and things like that. Uh, so all of those things that I think over time, especially if you're somebody who's eating a lot of meat, I think it, it's important. Now, if you're somebody who you don't like red meat and you're not eating that much, uh, then maybe it, that's not really enough to move the needle very much, right? Like maybe it's you're, you're eating it so infrequently that it doesn't make a big difference. But if you're somebody like me who has red meat pretty much every day, uh, I think that those small changes, that 1%, 2% difference in that quality of meat is going to make a difference over time. But even more importantly than your health is going to be the environmental impact of these things. So you hear a lot of people talk about the environmental impact of meat. It's one of the most commonly misunderstood things. These practices where when cattle and, you know, when animal agriculture is conducted in a way that the animals are not fed properly, these, you know, grain fed, different things like that, typically that's associated with animal agriculture practices that are less than ideal for the environment. These are the things that are a lot more harmful for our environment. Now, as a caveat to that, I will say the numbers and the statistics on this stuff is, is very out, is, it's outblown. Um, you, you look at things like the Golden Globes doing a vegetarian uh, diet when all of the people are flying in on their private jets to get to the event. It's kind of a funny thing. Like it's a very small percent percent of, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and all that stuff. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole on that. But the point is, is when you go to grass fed, grass finished, you're supporting in most cases, these farms that are, that are producing, uh, they're following animal agriculture practices that are actually beneficial for the environment. So when you're talking about you know, these concentrated feeding operations where you go to these companies who are mass producing massive quantities of meat where the cattle are all stored inside. Um, one, it's, it's not great for the actual animal itself. It's, it's definitely more animal cruelty involved there. Um, but two, the cattle aren't able to do what they do best, which is actually produce um, good things for our environment. So when cows are out eating off the land, they are one, they're, they're going to the bathroom outside, which is great for the microbial diversity of the soil. So this is a great thing for our environment. And then two, when they're out there kind of stomping up the soil, they're actually able to help sequester greenhouse gases. So when you start talking about these grass-fed, grass-finished operations, it's been calculated that these animals actually have a net negative impact on greenhouse gas emissions. So this is a good thing. So when we talk about the quality of meat, while I do think that the health component is important for people who are eating a lot of it, what's even more important to me is the environmental impact that, that, that this op, these types of operations have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people try to, like, even, I feel like a lot of people almost more so now take the angle of, like, not meat because of environment, almost. It's probably, I don't know what, what the percentage would be, but so many people now take the, the anti-meat approach solely based off environmental, not even based off of, um, off of nutritional. But so now we'll go into, uh, let's, go into let's go into poultry and, and chicken and what people should be looking, looking for, words and buzzwords and stuff like that at the grocery store. Yeah, so chicken is the funniest one. Um, and I'll yeah. start by saying, that personally, I don't eat a lot of chicken. 
Um, chicken actually has like one of the, of the meats, it has one of the greatest omega-6 to omega-3 ratios, meaning that there's far more omega-6 and omega-3, um, which isn't great. Like as a society, we have way more omega-6 and omega-3. That's omega-6 fats are a lot more pro-inflammatory. So um, as a whole, I don't eat a lot of chicken because also it doesn't contain a lot of nutrients. Like there's protein in chicken, um, but that's really about it. It doesn't really offer a whole lot else. But people like chicken. So if you're going to eat chicken, then um, you definitely want to look for the right things. And chicken's one of those things where they use so many different buzzwords, right? Where it's like they use the antibiotic stuff. Um, yeah. you know, they're not giving the chickens antibiotics and things like that. Those really aren't the words to look for. Um, you know, one of the definitely pasture raised is, is a big one. We break a lot of these things down in the book. But uh, right. the biggest thing is you want to look for the ones where they're actually getting like they're outside, right? So the, these chickens are actually. Um, out in their natural environment, eating their the appropriate food, um, you, you know, going for like vegetarian fed chickens, that just means they're feeding them a ton of soy usually, usually, which that's not beneficial, right? So you really want to make sure that they are, you know, they're pasture raised chickens that are actually outside, they're actually pecking, um, they're actually eating the things that they're supposed to be eating. Um, you know, some of these different things, I, I'm drawing a blank in my head now on some of the other terms that they use for, for chickens. But when they say things like, um, Oh, free range, right? Uh, or yeah. different, like some of that stuff just means that they're letting these things get go outside for like 30 minutes a day. And these, they're going outside on like a concrete slab, soaking up a little bit of sun and then they're sending them back inside, right? So you really want to make sure that you're looking for things that are, um, you know, pasture raised is going to be the best one. Uh, I don't think that looking for vegetarian fed is ideal uh, because like I said, you just end up, you, you're talking about a bunch of soy there and yeah, as another thing to talk about that again go back to the the environmental impact soy is something that is uh soy farming is something that's really destroying our environment it's actually really bad for these different things like microbial diversity and um the the cost on, on our resources to actually produce soy and things like that is not great so when you start talking about like soy fed chickens and stuff like that it's, it's actually far worse for the environment so um that's kind of another one but i will say too that if you're eating chicken because you're afraid of fat and you're worried about saturated fat and things like that uh that's something that we've been uh we've been kind of it's another misconception that's out there and uh it's right. not something that we need to worry about and i would definitely tell people that if you're only if your only source of meat is coming from chicken i would highly recommend that you start leaning more towards uh you know red meat and things like that yeah and um i knew this i had read a read a nutritional book like a while back and 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 like knew it then and had practiced it for a long time but had gotten away from it more recently in terms of buying the right eggs and um it's funny after I read read y'all's read y'all's book, I made sure to start buying pasture raised eggs again. And um, it's funny I was having a conversation with my sister last night in terms of how how a couple of the grocery store changes that I've made since I've read y'all's book. And I told her I was like ah, I started uh, getting pasture raised eggs again because like it's so important. Those other words are just trying to they're just trying to get you or whatever. And you were like you were saying how if you eat something so often, yes, that small change is super important. And she was like, oh, but it's just like, it's it's more expensive. Uh, it's so much more expensive to get pasture raised. I was like, yeah, but you eat, we eat it so often that it's that important over time to make that change. And I literally, I literally made a, said the quote to her that you guys put in your book, uh, that health is uh, health and nutrition is an investment, not an expense. So uh, I just want to quote you guys there real quick. <laughs> I love that because uh, this conversation, when you start talking about like 
higher quality foods and things like that. You get a lot of people who, you know, I've been posting things on social media about it. And I had some people that were, you know, coming up to me and saying, well, like they were turning up their nose and saying things like, well, you know, it must be nice to be able to afford those things, right? Or like, I can't afford doing any of those things. And, you know, there definitely are some people out there that truly can't afford it. But let's be honest, for the majority of people out there, if you prioritize something, you can do it. Like, there's people out there who aren't willing to prioritize prioritize their food selection, but they are able to go out on Friday night and spend, you know, $60 at the bar on drinks or, you know, ordering or like going to Starbucks and getting like a $5 coffee and things like that. Right. So it's like, you can always find if it's a priority to you, if it's not a priority to you, then, you know, then that's just a different conversation. But if you want to prioritize your health, like, you know, somebody said something to me one that one time about, you know, I, you don't understand where I'm coming from. Uh, you know, I just don't, I, I work a job that doesn't allow me to have money to do that. And I was just kind of like, Hey man, I was in school. You know, I was eating this way when I was in grad school, when I was hardly making enough money to scrape by rent. Uh, it's just that I was prioritizing this thing. I, it, to me, coming from a nutrition background, it was very important for me to feed myself the right way. So I made sacrifices in other ways. You know, I wasn't going out to the bar all the time. I wasn't buying junk food and snacks. And, you know, let's look at like eggs, for instance. Somebody says that they can't afford like pasture-raised eggs because they're more expensive. Well, what are you eating otherwise, right? Like if you're eating cereal or you're buying bagels, if you're buying any of those things, you can definitely afford a dozen pasture-raised eggs, right? Like, you know, a dozen pasture-raised eggs or, or 18 pack, that's going to be your breakfast for a week, right? Like that's, that's replacing something else. So, you know, there's, there's definitely ways for people to incorporate these things into their, like, I'm, I'm definitely not sitting over here loaded, right? Like I, I'm still able to find ways to do these things. Uh, but it's just a matter of, are you willing to prioritize this investment that is your health? And if you're not, that's okay. But if you, if you do want to prioritize it, I think that there's very few people out there who actually can't start making some of these changes. Yeah, no. And I, and I'm lo- I love that you bring that up because I think that's just something that People just need to be honest with themselves about. It's like you're not you're not not buying it because it's a dollar and a half extra. You're not buying it because it's actually not truly a priority to you currently at the time. Um, so you mentioned it real quick, and it was something I wanted to touch on. I know you could probably go down a rabbit hole of a lot of different topics, but I wanted to bring up Game Changers, uh, the Netflix documentary. Ooh. So maybe I'm trying to think of like what question I want to ask because of. Uh, how many there probably are to ask maybe name like the two like two things that you want to address that you see as false from that documentary or the two things that people need to know about after having watched it yeah so i would say and i will also start by saying that um if anybody wants to really really dive into um the like breaking this down, we actually published an article on perfectketo.com that debunks like literally it systematically mm-hmm. goes through, like every claim in Game okay. Changer, debunks like every single one of the ridiculous claims that they have. And uh, limiting this to two is going to be very challenging because this was one of the you know, this this put what to health or what the health to shame this documentary for how bad it was. So, um, the two things I would like to point out the one is that the ridiculous claim that they have about like trying to use uh, the, take these different athletes who are, you know, these elite athletes who might be following a vegetarian diet or plant-based diet and using that as justification for why they are elite athletes. You know, these guys are, these guys have different genetic makeups than you or I do, right? Like I am, I play sports and stuff. I'm an average Joe. These people that they're talking about are the elite. Okay. Like, LeBron James or whatever, like he, if he went on a, a plant-based diet, 
he's still going to be LeBron James. Is he going to perform as good as he can if he wasn't on it? I don't think so. But he's still going to be LeBron James regardless of if he's on a plant-based diet or not. And the other thing, too, is in this documentary, when you, when you start talking about um, these guys, they start saying, you know, when I switched to a plant-based diet, I started feeling so much better. And then you see what these guys were eating before, and it's like they were eating like Popeyes or like fried chicken and stuff like that. And that's like the biggest thing that I always tell people is, you know, most of the benefit of what a lot of these fad diets are is what they're not. So when you start looking at plant-based diets, if you were eating a standard American diet where you're eating McDonald's five days a week, and now you're eating broccoli, you're going to see some health improvements over that time, right? We shouldn't, shouldn't be so shocked to see that. So that's kind of a, a really big one is that, you know, we can't just say that, and like another example is that they talk about like the old, the gladiators, how the gladiators ate these plant-based diets and stuff. And they don't realize like these guys were slaves. They, gladiators were slaves. They weren't choosing to eat plant-based diets. They were given these, that's the food they were given because they were slaves. And, um, you know, most of these guys died, right? Like we weren't even able to like track their, their health over time. So it's, it's kind of ridiculous to use these examples as, you know, it'd be the, it wouldn't be any different as like, you know, a few few years ago, I remember when like LeBron James went on a low carb diet and everybody was talking about it. Like if we started on in the keto community, started running around saying that like, oh, keto diet made LeBron James, LeBron James, like people would laugh at us. Like that's a ridiculous statement. You know, he's been an elite athlete since he was like 15 years old. So I think that like looking at those cases, it just, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and then the, the, the second thing is going back to like the environmental impact of, of this diet. Um, these numbers that they give are just so skewed in the wrong direction. One of the biggest things, and I actually didn't know this until I listened to uh, Chris Kresser on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talking about when you start seeing these claims that say that, you know, uh, animal agriculture leads to X percent of, uh, of the contribution, like greenhouse gas emissions, and they start comparing that to like all these other things. What people don't realize is that when they're measuring the um, when they're measuring the, the greenhouse gas emissions for the animal agriculture, they're measuring it in its totality. So from the time that the, like, the animal is born to the time that that is actually on the shelf at the store. So we're talking about all the costs of production, transportation, all of those things. And they're comparing it to just strictly or like plant agriculture. They're not using those. They're not also talking about the production methods or the transportation or any of those things. So you're comparing apples to oranges, right? It's com two completely different things that you're comparing. So a lot of those things are skewed. Um, so when you start talking about, you know, when they're, they give these numbers out that like, you know, animal agriculture causes all these different things on the environment, it's, it's actually the complete opposite. When you start talking about sustainable, sustainable animal agriculture that's done the right way, it's not only not harmful for the environment, it's actually superior for the environment. And really, you talk to some people, there's no other option right now. I mean, monoculture, which is like, you know, all the soy and corn and all of that, the subsidized crop farming, all that stuff that's going on, that stuff has created pollination deserts. It's destroyed the microbial diversity of our soil. Um, and the only way that we can restore these things is through sustainable animal agriculture. So, you know, in summary, it's like if you're, if you're doing a plant-based diet because you think it's better for your health, it's not. And if you're doing it because you think it's better. Now, I should, I, let me take that back. It is better than the standard American diet in the short term. So I will say that. Um, but if you're doing it because you think it's better for, for your health, um, then you need to, to look into it a little bit more. And then if you're doing it because you think it's better for the environment, you also need to know that it's, it's not. And then as a third one, and this one I didn't realize till recently, if you're doing it because you think that, uh, 
you know, because of animal cruelty and things like that. You also have to understand the number of field animals that die per acre of land of things that get farmed like soy and all of that. Um, you're also still contributing to the death of animals when you're doing that. So I know that that's kind of a hard thing for people to hear, but those are the types of things that are in game changers that they're not shedding all of the light on. Right. And it's not a surprise that they're not doing that. When you look at the director, James Cameron, he's somebody who has, you know, almost $200 million invested into a pea protein company. So obviously he's not going to, um, he's going to skew and and bias the, the conversation towards what makes the most sense for him. Uh, which happens in every space, you know, it happens in the low carb keto space as well. So, um, but yeah, I think those are definitely the two biggest things that uh, people should, should look at. And I'll also say that if you like, besides the article um, that we put out on perfect keto, if you have more interest in this topic, uh, Chris Kresser's uh, episode on Joe Rogan, not the second one where he was not able to talk and really like uh, defend himself, but the first one where he actually goes through and he uses research to like systematically debunk all of those things. That's a really great episode. I think that Chris Kresser is one of the most brilliant minds uh, in the nutrition space. And he's not somebody that just talking to talk. He's somebody that really supports what he's doing with research and, and knows how to read and interpret research. So that would be another great place for people to go. I like it. I like it. I'll make sure I have those things uh, linked up to the the show notes and everything. Yeah, because I think I, I like I loved what you said uh, midway through there, and you kind of caught yourself there at the end, um, saying that a lot of these fad diets aren't necessarily what the diet is; it's what they're not, and like where you're coming from. Because that was one of the things that I pointed out to people too, in terms of the game changers thing. It's not they never mentioned what they were eating beforehand, yeah, and what they were transitioning to. So obviously, like if they were going to this. The more plant, the plant-based diet after having, like you said, like maybe eating like McDonald's or whatever, of course you're going to see improvements. And that's, that's what a lot of people experience when they go to a different diet because they were coming from a super bad, a bad place beforehand. So, yeah. And I'll also uh, say like to, to be, um, you know, to make sure that people know that I'm not biased here, that is some of the benefits with keto too, right? Like there's, there's, I think that there's a lot of other benefits, like ketones that get produced when you're in ketosis, like there's a metabolic advantage to that and stuff. But also, like a lot of the benefit to keto is that you're not eating carbs anymore, and especially processed carbohydrates. Like that does account for some of those changes. So I'm not so biased to say that that's only the plant-based diet that is is you know people have that conversation. There's a lot of people on keto who are, are just as biased towards the diet as, and it's the same thing. Um, what you know, if you look at almost all the fad diets out there, what most of them have in common is that you are cutting out processed carbohydrates and you're no longer chronically overeating carbs. That's not saying that's not to demonize carbohydrates, but when you start looking at how a third of our population in the US is pre-diabetic, it makes sense that diets that cut out processed carbs are going to lead to some health benefits. Um, that doesn't mean that any of them are a miracle, but it, it just means that like that's the problem that we need to be addressing. Yeah, gotcha. So let's say, getting down to the last few questions, let's say somebody, you know, after listening to this episode and maybe has been thinking about doing keto or, or something like it, you know, like cutting cutting down carbs and stuff like that. Because like you, I mean, you, like you guys say here, like simplifying everything you need to know about the world's most complex uh, or confusing diet. And it is complex. There's a lot of information in here, a lot of things to take action on. And I think that sometimes complexity is the enemy of execution. It's the enemy of action. So if you were to tell somebody who wants to start making an adjustment in their diet based off of a lot of things that you talk, you guys talk about, what are maybe a couple things, like two things that they should start doing immediately that you say that you see are two of the most important things that people can start to take action on. 
Yeah, definitely. So first one is it's really simple. It's eat real food, right? Like I don't think even, even if you're not going fully keto or going all the way, like if you eat real food, you're going to inherently lower your carb intake, which is probably the reason why you're considering, like it's probably the reason why you need to consider a keto diet anyway. So, you know, if that means that you're still having, you know, like potatoes and things like that, or some fruit and stuff you're doing, if you're cutting out the processed sugar and, or the refined sugar and the processed carbs and stuff, you're making a huge step in the right direction. So that's a big one is just eat real food. Um, And then the second one would be to start not just thinking about what you should be removing from your diet, but thinking about what you should be replacing it with. I think that so Mm. many times people are, that's a good point. Yeah. we, We get so focused on, okay, I'm taking carbs out or I'm taking sugar out of my diet or whatever, but we forget to replace that with nutrient dense foods that actually fuel our body. So, you know, I think those things are just as important. So, you know, in my opinion, from what I've seen, I think the most nutrient dense on the foods are animal proteins. I think that, you know, eggs and and red meat are probably the two most nutrient dense things you can put in your body. So I think that if you really want to make a change with your health, it's going to be through making sure that you're eating whole foods probably the less packaged foods that you're eating, the better, you know, things that if the, if the ingredient list is this long on the back of it, you probably shouldn't be eating it. It's not a real food. And then replace that with nutrient dense foods. Um, and then, you know, as the third thing, just to throw it in there, I think that finding a way to uh, change your environment and adopt things as a habit is going to be the biggest thing, right? Like motivation waivers, right? We can, you, everybody can have a motivation to start a diet, right? Or to, you know, buy a book or go to the grocery store and get healthy food. But it's very, you can't rely on motivation and willpower forever because we know that those things waver. You have to adopt habits. And the best way to do do that is to change your environment, in my opinion. Um, And I will say for anybody who's interested in this side of the conversation, I just finished reading a book called Tiny Habits, um, which is uh, it's an incredible book that really gives just actionable items on how to uh, incorporate behavior change into your day-to-day lifestyle. And um, I'm going to be putting out a lot more content on this coming up to help people with this. But it's the most important part because I think so much in this nutrition space, we rely on information as being the thing that's going to get people to change. Most people know that they shouldn't be eating candy bars, right? Like, most people know they shouldn't come home and have six beers before they go to bed or, you know, eat pizza all the time and things like that. But that doesn't make it easier for them to do it. Um, right. So it's not just about knowing and, and knowing what you should and shouldn't do. It's also about how to incorporate lifestyle changes and habit changes and how to change your environment. And I think that if you can do that, then that's going to be how you make a change long term, right? Because it's not about being able to follow keto or paleo or whatever it is. It's not about being able to follow it for 30 days. It's about being able to change your lifestyle long term so that you can reap the benefits for, you know, longer than just, you know, 30, 60 days. Yeah. I like that that last thing that you just said because that's something that I think a lot about and I try to help people understand and help people find ways to to do more or so I'll the, the idea that you said is that a lot of people know what to do, but they don't do what they know. And right. so I think I think that the biggest thing with it's with with health, with a lot of things just in general, people don't necessarily always need help with the strategy. They need help with the execution side of things. Totally. And so that's one of the that's like one of my biggest passions, helping people like execute on what they basically know they should be doing. Like obviously there's different levels of education, there's different levels of like better strategies than others, but but probably even the bigger the bigger problem rather than lack of education is re- lack of execution for a lot of people. Um, so I, 
nobody who's smoking cigarettes is walking around thinking that smoking cigarettes is a good thing, right? Like no. that's a habit that's ingrained in them. And the same thing can be said for diet. Like people who they have triggers, right? And they have these these prompts that kind of they have a hard time beating. Like you're stressed at your job, so you go into the break room and there's cookies in there, so you eat them. You know, you know that that's not the best thing to do, but you do it anyway, right? And um, and that's because it's it has to be this overall lifestyle shift that's going to help you be able to execute on these things. So, and you know, to add to that too, I'd say that people who are in that that kind of cycle where they know that they want to get healthy but they just can't do it. Don't beat yourself up on it because that's the majority of people. Even the people out there that look the most disciplined in their diet, that think that they're, um, you know, that the display that they have all of this motivation and willpower and stuff like that, even they have a hard time staying on track and, and doing those things. So you just have to do your best every, you know, every single day. I, I said something to somebody the other day about this about how every single day that you are focusing and taking even a single step towards improving your health is a massive win that should be celebrated because there are so many people that won't even take that first step. And if you can take that first step and then you can celebrate it, that first step turns into a second step and into a third step. And then that just snowballs down to you really taking control of your health again. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, and the other thing that you mentioned that I really wanted to mention real quick is like a substitute, like creating a substitute, not just eliminating, but finding a substitute. And you guys have a really good chart kind of towards the back of the book of like, you know, like buns, uh, potatoes, like a bunch of different things that are, are high in carbs and like what you can substitute it with. So I think that's just a, a great like resource that's in the books and then just a great idea that people need to start thinking about, like not just completely eliminating this, but what can I substitute it with? What can I replace it with? Um, but uh, I'm going to get down to the last couple questions. So this, this show has been a lot about education and how people can improve themselves nutritionally. But the last couple questions are going to have a little bit different vibe to them. So, but I, I, I asked these last two to, to every single guest. So I, beca- I believe that to become the best version of yourself, that one of the most important things is to kind of try to get a, a clarity of vision of what that person looks like and what that person is capable of. That's the goal of the podcast to help people gain clarity of what the best version of themselves looks like and then to provide them with tools, tips, and, and inspiration on how to make that happen. And so I want to I wanna ask you, is there a, a skill or a piece of knowledge that the best version of yourself has that you don't currently have? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, hmm. There's many of them, I'll say, too. I'm not sitting here trying. I'm just trying to think of the best one. Um, yeah. So I would say, you know, a big one for me is, um, yeah, I would say a really big one for me. This is something that I had a couple, so a couple of years ago, I'll give a brief backstory about this. A couple of years ago, I was somebody who was just extremely disciplined in a sense of like, if I committed to something, I did it a hundred percent of the time. Uh, if I said I was going to follow this diet, I was going to follow it indefinitely. Um, if I made a commitment, if I, even if I didn't want to do it, I did that. And one of my like resolutions in 2019 was to give myself more permission to ease up on that a little bit, right? Like, you know, give, give myself permission to not uh, have to say yes to everything all the time or, you know, break obligations occasionally. But I found that in 2019, I kind of overcorrected the other way where when things got tough, I just wouldn't do them anymore, right? Like if I was at the gym and I just didn't really feel like working out, I'd just go home, right? Or if like, if I was out to eat and I, uh, I didn't really feel like sticking to keto anymore. I would just not do it anymore. So I think the best version of myself has a, a proper blend of those two things where still has a very solid amount of willpower, probably 80% of the time doing the 
things that I'm committed to doing, but then also giving myself permission 20% of the time to just kind of ease up and be okay with not doing those things. So I don't have an exact word for that, um, but it's been something that I've been meditating a lot on uh, over the last like couple of weeks and as I've gotten into the new year. So I don't know if, if there's a specific word, but I think that's what the best version of me would have. I've, I've got to tell you, I don't know if I've heard, and it, it could just because I resonate so closely with that, but I don't know if I've heard a better answer than that before. Um, I Because I, 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 I'm kind of right now in the spot maybe where you were a couple years ago where I feel like I'm super disciplined. Like if I'm saying I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. Like if something else comes up, like, sorry, not going to happen, I'm doing this because yeah. I've said I'm going to do it. But I also believe in the importance of like being flexible. Like the, the way that I like to, to, to talk about this is when we set a goal or like maybe it's just a task that we're going to do, when we set that thing, like we're setting that because we think that that should be our top priority. We think that that is going to help us improve maximally towards where we want to be right we're making the best decision that we think but who are we to actually like we can only do the best that we possibly can in terms of determining that thing who are we to know that that thing is actually the thing that we should be doing and that is the best use of our time so it's like you need to be disciplined during a lot of things to follow them all the way through but also be flexible and be willing to see that you don't always know that that is the right thing. And there are some times where you need to pivot and do other things. I think it's, it's also knowing that like, even if you have this like big goal that you're going after, you don't have to get there today, right? Like it's not, the, the journey is kind of the, the best part, right? Like if you could just knock all of your goals out that you have tomorrow, well, what the hell else would you do after that, right? Like you would just be sitting there twiddling your thumbs. So I think it's like just, it's enjoying the journey and knowing that like, Every day, if you're taking some step towards being a better you, that's great. But not every step has to be becoming a better you, right? Or being the most perfect version of yourself. It's just you, you, every day, it's about the journey of trying to get better step by step every single day. And the more days you can string that together, the better you're going to be. I think for me, it was like, you know, you start sitting there and you start seeing these goals of like, I want to do this and this and this and this. So then I have to do them all now, right? Like there's, there's no, no better time now than to do all of them. And, and that's not a sustainable way to look at life. Um, so I think that it's just kind of trying to, to look, be a little bit easier on yourself, right? And know that like, it's going to take diligence and, and discipline to get where you want to be, but it's also going to be okay for you to chill out and relax and enjoy life a little bit along the way. Yeah, I love that. I love it. Well, before I ask the last question, I want to acknowledge you, Chris, because I think that for you uh, coming from, I, I, you saw very early on where in an area where you kind of needed to improve in a, in a very significant area of everybody's life and you took it upon yourself to take action on it and to, to educate yourself and to actually experiment with a lot of different things yourself to be maximally educated through simply experience and through study and research and all that kind of stuff. And then to be able to continue to have that continued curiosity to always try to learn more, learn more to serve people and the best way you know how and the best way uh, you have to your um, to the best of your ability. I think that's just super cool. And I want to make sure everybody can go support you as much as possible. So make sure you follow him, The Ketologist, on Instagram. Uh, your website is theketologist.com as well, right? Yeah, it is. Awesome. Good deal. And then tell them where, where can people go find uh, Keto Answers and, and, other, and other places they can go support you. Yeah, so um, I really appreciate the kind words too. That really means a lot. Um, so keto answers is available on Amazon. It's a, it's an Amazon. We actually self-published the book, so it's, it's only available on there right now. 
Uh, we have it in a ebook version, Kindle version, as well as uh, paperback, and uh, hopefully having an audiobook version of that coming out soon. Um, so that's going to be the best one. Uh, but then I'll also reiterate that um, you, you mentioned social media and stuff. Instagram is going to be the best uh, platform to kind of reach me at. Um, I always respond to every DM that gets sent to me. I don't let a single one go unresponded, and it's it's always me responding. It's kind of, uh, in my opinion, it's kind of my uh, job to serve and, and help people and, and answer questions as they come in. So um, over the last couple of years, I've been getting more and more questions. So my response time is definitely getting a little bit slower. Um, but if you, if you have questions and you put them in there, you're always going to get an answer from me. So um, don't put it on Facebook because I hate Facebook and I never go on there. So if you, if you want to get something answered, I, I encourage you to check out uh, Instagram. So, but yeah, Keto Answers book is available on uh, Amazon and um, you know, really the, to kind of talk about that for a second too, the biggest goal with that book is to put a resource in somebody's hand that will will prevent them from being confused and having to search the internet and fall victim to whatever SEO strategy somebody put in place to make sure that their answer is ranking first. Uh, we wanted to have a resource that would have everything in there. So um, if there's ever, if somebody picks up the book and your question's not answered in there, please reach out to us because one, we want to make sure that it gets put in the book. Um, but two, we also want to, we want to get a good feel for what people need to know. You know, the questions that we put in that book are based on us interviewing and talking to people who have been following or trying to follow keto. So we're always looking to improve that resource. So if there's something not answered in there, please reach out and let us know. I love it. Yeah. And, and hey, you guys need to make sure you go follow him because his account is one of the most helpful and, and truly practical accounts out there um, to be able to get gain a lot of knowledge and, and things that you can use practically in your everyday life. So the last question is, I think that becoming the best version of yourself is a constant journey. Like you, like you talked about, it's a, it is a journey. And I also believe it's a unique journey. I think that the way that I'm going to become the best version of myself is going to be a little bit different than the way that you become the best version of yourself. So what I want to ask for you personally is if you could currently do you, you may, maybe already mentioned one, but if you could currently do or currently work on three things to get closer to the best version of yourself, what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? Got it. So one would be meditation for sure. Um, I am new to meditating in the last like year and a half and uh, have, have had a hard time staying diligent with it. Um, so that's a big one. I think that when I'm doing it, I, I already feel like a better version of myself when I'm doing it. So I think that that is a really big one. Um, I think the second one is, uh, deep work is something that I'm always, uh, trying to improve on. I know that when I am, uh, when I'm in a good flow of doing deep work, which is just my uninterrupted work in the morning that's happening when, you know, nobody has access to, to interrupt my workflow or anything like that. I know that I'm producing high quality work that can help a lot of people. Um, but sometimes in this day and age and the way that the digital world is, is it's, it can be hard to get into that. So I think being more diligent to, uh, to be able to stay in a good deep work flow, I think is going to be a big one. And then, uh, you know, the third one that just kind of popped into my head, I think is sleep. I think that's a big one for me. I am, uh, I'm one of those people that if I if I had the choice of never having to sleep, I would totally never do it. I hate sleep. Yeah, you're you just say the same way. Yeah, I just like sleep. Oh, yeah. My least favorite thing in the world. I get I'm angry when I have to go to bed, and I'm so excited when I can get up in the morning to to just get after the day. So, um, but I also know that that's not a sustainable way to be. So, and and you know, I've been focusing over the last probably six months on improving my sleep habits. And uh, I've noticed that how, how beneficial it is, even though I hate doing it. I know it's improvement 
Uh, it, it leads to me, one, being a happier person, more energy, um, producing better work, things like that. So I know that, that those are, you know, those are the three things I think that would help me get to being a better me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, those are, uh, those are great three things. I love it. Well, I appreciate your time, Chris. That was great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. There you have it. I hope you guys enjoyed this awesome episode with Chris. I hope you learned a thing or two that you can go and start applying to your daily nutrition routine. If you enjoy this episode, make sure you go leave it a quick review on the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. I try to bring you guys week after week some of the best people in the world in their industries. So all I ask in return is maybe a quick review, maybe sharing it with your friend, maybe posting about it on social media, whatever works best for you. We just want to make sure that these inspiring words and stories and knowledge get to more people so that we can work on all getting closer to the best and healthiest versions of ourselves. Remember that nutrition is different for everyone. Not everybody's habits up to this point have been the same. Not everyone responds to the same way, to the same foods. Everybody's exercise habits are different. Everyone's metabolisms are different. So try some things out for yourself and measure them based on how successful they are with you, not how successful they are with somebody else because they don't live the same lifestyle as you. They don't have the same body as you. If nothing else comes out of today, I want you to remember to minimize as much as possible processed carbohydrates and to eat real foods. Those two things are gonna be two of the most important things that you can take out of today's episode. No nutrition expert anywhere can argue these things, but yet so many people don't follow these two simple guidelines. Again, minimize processed carbohydrates and eat real foods. Try not to overcomplicate these things for yourselves. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let me know what you wanna hear more of by sending me a DM on Instagram at carrier underscore best you. Rate and review the show. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Share it with a friend. Hope to grow this awesome community and spread the word. But for now, it's time. Time to take action. Use one of the tips Chris gave here today to get healthier, feel better, have more energy, lose weight, or increase your performance so that you can take one step closer to your best you. You.